happy Monday. It is the summer solstice, which means that uh, today is the longest day of the year, uh, which is, I think, reason to celebrate. If you're uh, of a negative cast of mind, you might be thinking that uh, that means that that uh, the days get shorter from now on, which I try to avoid thinking about because that actually depresses me because I, I don't like to think that we have peaked out this early in the, the, the summer. Uh, our guest today is Eric Edelman, who's an American diplomat. Uh, he's a, been a guest before on this program, a former undersecretary of defense for policy and the U.S. ambassador to Turkey, the U.S. ambassador to Finland, principal deputy assistant to the vice president for national security affairs. And we could go on, but then we'd run out of time, wouldn't we? Ambassador Edelman, thanks for coming back on. Appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me, Charlie. It's always great to be with you. There are many, many sound bites that we could start with today, um, including some very serious ones. But I, but I just wanted to start off the week uh, with the former, uh, what was it, the former White House physician? Is that his title? What uh, Ron, Ron, Ronnie Jackson, who's now a Republican congressman, who uh, ha- has some thoughts about the cognitive health of, uh, of President Biden compared to President Trump. Let's just play Ronnie Jackson. We submitted to that. President Trump, as you mentioned, he did he, he had a perfect score on his cognitive test, an outstanding performance. And I, I, I'm just saying now, I'm saying that is the new standard. The, the precedent has been set. And I'm asking Joe Biden and his medical team to get out there and to get this physical exam done, get this cognitive testing done and get the results back to the American people. We need to know that we can trust our president. Uh. <laughs> Yeah, this was was that like the, the the camera woman man test or something that Trump took at one time? I think he took a couple actually. Um, if I recall correctly, uh, Representative Jackson, when he was then Doctor Jackson, um, said that Trump could live to be two hundred. Um, yes, that's right. <laughs> which I don't think most physicians believe is possible. Um, so uh, you know. I, what can I say? I mean, if you want to compare Biden's performance uh, at the round of summits he had with um, with Donald Trump, I mean, he didn't shove anybody out of the way to get into the center of the group photo. And as I noted in a column I wrote for The Bulwark about the Biden-Putin summit, none of Biden's staff felt the necessity to either look for a fire alarm to pull or... <laughs> or feigned a medical emergency, as Fiona Hill told NPR she considered, in order to shut down the absolutely awful uh, Trump press conference with Putin in Helsinki, where he said that he trusted Putin rather than the American intelligence community. So, uh, you know, all things considered, I think Biden gave a pretty damn good account of himself when he was overseas compared to Trump. See, that would have been so outstanding if Fiona Hill had actually done that, you know, had fainted just to, to stop it. It would have been like a scene from Veep, except that even even the writers of Veep probably would have thought that was that was over the top. So we, we could talk. I mean, the thing about the Ronnie Jackson thing that and I suppose this has become a kind of a chronic thing where you, you watch somebody who used to be the White House physician saying something this this crazy. And the question inevitably comes, how did this person get the job in the first place? This was the guy who was the White House physician when Barack Obama was the president of the United States. He is providing medical advice to people at the highest levels of power. He's handing out pills on Air Force One. And I guess this keeps coming up over and over again. You look at, you know, Michael Flynn. How did this guy become a general? How did he become, you know, is, is there is there some weird thing about the vetting process that we don't understand that so many of the people in positions of real power turn out later to be, 
I don't know, shall we say, since it's Monday and I'm, it'd be nice and everything, and, and I'm still heavily medicated on painkillers, so I'll be nice, um, that they are eccentric. Or, or crazy. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, that would be the not nice version of it. Yeah, were, batch, they, you know. yeah, were they always crazy or did they only become crazy? I, I choose to believe that, you know, that um, uh, the, the great science fiction writer Philip K. Dick had this notion of contact lunacy. Um, and, oh, and oh. you know, to me that this is you know, just another example of someone who's been affected by close contact with Donald Trump and has walked away, you know, a, a complete lunatic as a result of it. I, mean, I have to, I have to look this up. Contact lunacy. This is a thing. Philip K. Dick. I love the guy. Yeah, no, he was a great writer. And, uh, so contact lunacy for me has been the explanation all along you know, for this effect that Trump seems to have on people. I mean, to take Mark Meadows. I mean, that's another story from over the weekend, right? Pushing the uh, Italy gate conspiracy about, you know, uh, the Italians uh, using uh, at the request of the American embassy, allegedly uh, space satellites to change ballots from, you know, uh, uh, Biden to or from Trump to Biden and throwing the election. And this was being propagated by some woman who had a camera crew in to talk to her at a mansion, which she claimed to own. It turned out she didn't. I mean, you know, it's just, you can't make it up. As you said, no. deep writers would just say, nah, come on, too unlikely. No, that's obviously a crazy theory about the, the Italian satellites, because as we know, those ballots were changed by the Jewish space lasers. Right so, there. I mean, we, we, we need to understand what is plausible and what is not plausible. Okay, so from uh, the ridiculous to the... Um, much more serious. I have to play for you. This is a little longer soundbite than I would normally play, uh, but this remarkable exchange uh, between Jonathan Swan and the Prime Minister of Pakistan, Imran Khan, is that how you pronounce his name? Yes. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, Jonathan Swan is sitting down with, Jonathan Swan from Axios is sitting down with, with him, and, and they're talking about uh, anti-Muslim uh, sentiment in the United States and Europe, and uh, the Prime Minister is waxing somewhat eloquent and indignant about uh, anti Muslim sentiment, uh, uh, anti-Islamic sentiment uh, after after 9-11. And then Jonathan Swan turns the focus from the, from the United States and Europe to the, the whole question of, well, why don't you say anything about what's happening to the Uyghurs, the Muslim Uyghurs in China right across your border? So I want to play this because it's remarkable. And Ambassador, I want to get your insight into what we're actually hearing here. So th this is Jonathan Swan with the Prime Minister of Pakistan. Just across your border in Western China, the Chinese government has imprisoned more than one million Uyghur Muslims in re-education camps. The Chinese government has tortured Muslims, forcibly sterilized them, and they've destroyed mosques in Xinjiang and also punished Muslims for fasting, praying, even giving Muslim names to their children. Prime Minister, why are you so outspoken about Islamophobia in Europe and the United States, but totally silent about the genocide of Muslims in Western China? what our conversations have been with the Chinese, this is not the case, according to them. The evidence is just overwhelming. Whatever issues we have with the Chinese, we speak to them behind closed doors. China has been a great, one of the greatest friends to us in our most difficult times. When we were really struggling, our economy was struggling, China came to our rescue. So we respect the way they, they are. And whatever issues we have, we speak behind closed doors. How come this is such a big issue in the Western world? 
Why are the people of Kashmir ignored? It is much more relevant compared to what might be going in the Urugas. 100,000 Kashmiris have been killed. There are 800,000 Indian troops, which have literally, it's an open prison in Kashmir. Nine million Kashmiris are put there. Why is that not an issue? So I think it's hypocrisy. They've been a huge partner to you, China. But on some level, doesn't it make you feel sick to have to be quiet because of all this money they're putting into Pakistan? I look around the world, what's happening in Palestine, Libya, Somalia, Syria, Afghanistan. Am I going to start talking about everything? I concentrate on what is happening on my border, in my country. This is on your border. Which is, which is part of... No, that is part of Pakistan. 100,000 Kashmiris are dying. That concerns me more because a half of Kashmir is in Pakistan. This is a grotesquely large human rights atrocity. I would... First of all, I'm not sure about that because our conversations, our conversations with the Chinese, this is not the picture sure that comes that. from that side. No, so no. just to put a fine point on this, you are not in any way concerned about the Muslim Uyghurs in Xinjiang? Our discussions with Chinese will always be behind closed doors. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Okay, so, Ambassador Edelman, what, what what did we just hear there? Because it sounded to me as close as I ever thought I would come to hearing a prime minister basically say, yeah, we've been bought off. Our silence has been purchased by the Chinese. What, 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 what is happening there? Great clip, uh, Charlie. I'm glad you played it. Um, I think there, there's a lot of things going on there. So let me unpack it a little bit. Um, one... Um, I think what you hear there is what a great interviewer Jonathan Swan is, among other things. Yes, um, definitely. You know, I mean, I, I, I am in awe of Jonathan and, and just think he is one of the best at what he does. Um, second, of course, one of the things on the surface that you're hearing is you know, a lot of what aboutism, you know, uh, the Uyghurs, mm-hmm. what about Kashmir, you know, et cetera. That's a longstanding Pakistani grievance, obviously. Um, the other thing you're hearing is, uh, and, and there's, you know, some of your hearing and there's a lot that's not said. So uh, Imran Khan is a Pakistani politician who uh, has traded on anti-Americanism for, for a very, very long time. So uh, he acknowledged uh, China's longtime patronage of Pakistan, you know, on the basis of the enemy of my enemy is my friend, given uh, the sort of strained uh, Chinese relations with India going back, you know, many, many years. Um, some of that Chinese patronage, by the way, was uh, assistance uh, to uh, Pakistan's nuclear program under AQ Khan. Um, uh, China mm-hmm. played a not uh, inconsiderable role in, in helping facilitate that development. And so as a result of this Chinese patronage, you know, he's going to take up whatever criticisms he have of, has of China, which is to say not many uh, privately, but that's not going to stop him uh, from airing his differences with the United States, which has also been a long time patron of Pakistan, but to be fair, a little bit less, uh, a little more uh, inconstant one than China. Um, but certainly during the Cold War, a very strong patron of You're right of Pakistan. Uh, he's quite happy to take, you know, his uh, criticisms out of on the United States out in public. Um, among other things, he said during that interview in parts you didn't play that Pakistan would not serve as a base after the withdrawal mm-hmm. of right. for, for the United States. Um, and yes, I mean, he basically, you know, was saying, as you suggested, uh, you know, China's 
uh, helped our economy, which has been a basket case for much of Pakistan's existence on multiple occasions, including recently. Um, and so, yes, we're going to turn a blind eye to their their human rights violations. To put it in a bigger picture, I think one of the things I worry about a lot, and uh, my former colleague in government, uh, Ambassador Bob Joseph, and I wrote about this in the Bulwark uh, uh, a couple of uh, months ago uh, when President Biden announced the Afghanistan decision. The um, Afghanistan withdrawal, I don't think, has taken into account the Pakistan dimension very much. Hmm. Pakistan is a uh, fragile, if not failing state. It's kind of been perpetually failing, uh, frankly, since 1947, since partition. But it also is a nuclear weapon state. And it's producing enormous amounts of plutonium and developing a rather large uh, nuclear arsenal. Uh, we've always been, we, the United States, have always been concerned about the potential for those weapons uh, to get out of uh, you know, positive control of the Pakistani government. And one thing that I don't think has had nearly sufficient discussion about the Afghanistan decision is what happens if the Afghan government collapses uh, absent the presence of U.S. troops and contractors, uh, the difficulty of uh, uh, executing um, over-the-horizon support for the Afghans. We just saw that um, you know, in the last few days when the commander of one of the Afghan special forces um, units was killed in part because they didn't have uh, U.S. air support. Um, hmm. And... We tend to forget that right now the biggest you know, refugee population in the world, of course, is a result of the Syrian civil war, which is going on for a decade. But before that, the largest refugee population in the world had been in Afghanistan after the Soviet invasion. More than two million Afghans living in Pakistan, which um, did a lot to fuel the rise of the Taliban in Afghanistan, but also um, the rise of um, of jihadist movements in, in Pakistan as well. If you get another huge um, outflow of Afghan refugees into Pakistan, destabilizing a country that's got a nuclear arsenal roughly, you know, maybe slightly smaller, but on a track to surpass that of the United Kingdom, hmm. um, uh, you know, and that government collapses, I mean, it, it is going to be, you know, a very dangerous uh, situation. And we're not going to have troops nearby who might be able to try and secure any nuclear weapons that get loose. So I, I think the Imran Khan um, uh, interview with Jonathan Swan um, you know, raised some very immediate questions uh, about the Afghan withdrawal um, and uh, about Imran Khan and what's going to be the future of Pakistan, but, but also some second and third order consequences of the Biden administration's Afghanistan withdrawal decision, which I don't think have been adequately thought through or discussed. Let's also talk about, I want to go back to China, though. Uh, what is China doing for Pakistan that, that wins this kind of uh, uh, silence, get, wins this kind of, you know, willingness to to not criticize? Uh, I guess the question is, 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 is Pakistan becoming a satellite of, uh, of, of, of China? Is it becoming an ally of China? Is the investment level in China, by the Chinese something that we, um, you know, could, could match or are not matching? What's what's going on? Well, I mean, the, the Chinese, I mean, have come in, uh, and not just in Pakistan, but um, in other places as well, and used 
the fact that they've got a lot of money uh, at hand. Um, in there, they've got a Belt and Road Initiative, uh, yeah. which is meant to invest in infrastructure, and it, it's in certainly in places like South Asia, but also Central Asia, but well beyond that. I mean, into Europe, where they're buying up the Port of Piraeus, certainly in Turkey, where they've been buying up distressed assets, and in Iran, uh, where they signed a long-term economic deal. So this is part of China's uh, predatory economic statecraft. Uh, it comes with, in, in a country like Pakistan, where corruption is endemic, uh, it, it, um, it feeds on that corruption and, um, and in turn um, you know, makes the economy less competitive um, and, and buys off political elites. I mean, that's part of the intention. So let's talk about, since we're on the Middle East, um, over the weekend we had an election, and last week we had an election in Iran, um, hardliner elected president. Um, give me your sense of where that takes us. Um, obviously, this is a in part fallout from the the end of the, the nuclear deal that had been brokered by the previous administration. So are, are we looking at rougher times, or does it take a hardliner to be able to cut a deal with us? What is your sense? Optimistic, pessimistic? challenge? Well, I, I mean, I think it's uh, an expression of the inner dynamic of the Iranian system. Uh, I, I'm struck, frankly, by uh, how little uh, we outsiders really understand about the politics of, of Iran. Uh, I, I think that there's been a long-standing tendency in the West to break down Iran into sort of categories that we think are comprehensible, like moderate, yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, moderate and reformer. This is what my former boss Bob Gates used to call the search for the elusive Iranian moderate. <laughs> um, when in fact, you know, everybody in the political system there is uh, committed to uh, the revolution, the Islamic revolution. It's a uh, what political scientists like to call an electoral authoritarian regime. There is some element of popular sovereignty in the sense that they have elections, but the elections are very closely overseen by this uh, institution, the Guardianship Council, that um, vets candidates and, and uh, kicks some of them off the ballot. So uh, most of the serious reform candidates were kicked off the ballot. And then uh, in response to that, uh, the less well-known reformers uh, actually dropped out because they didn't want to legitimize the election. Uh, I believe this was the lowest turnout uh, ever in an Iranian presidential election. I believe the official figure was something like 49%, but there's some evidence that even that number was inflated. And I think what that speaks to is the lack of legitimacy, of increasing lack of legitimacy of more than 40 years after the revolution of uh, the Islamic uh, theocracy in, uh, in Iran. Um, and I think part of what this election about is about is uh, the Supreme Leader, uh, Ali Khamenei, uh, arranging potentially for his own succession. So there's a lot of speculation that um, uh, Ibrahim Raisi, the uh, winning candidate, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, um, or the head of their Supreme Court, um, is either a candidate to be the successor himself or at least is uh, going to go along with whoever Khamenei wants uh, designates as his successor. There's some discussion of Khamenei's son being the successor. So I think a lot of this has to do with internal Iranian politics that we uh, very uh, imperfectly understand. But I'm very amused by the number of voices uh, of people who, uh, when the Biden administration first came into office, said, 
We have to hurry up and get a deal done before June 18th uh, when, right. the, when the Iranian election takes place because a hardliner will be elected. Uh, it's and, done. And then that'll be the end of our effort to get back into the joint conference plan of action. Now, some of these very same people are saying, this is a good thing. It shows that, <laughs> it shows that the Supreme Leader is committed to the negotiations and therefore we can keep negotiating. Uh, because, you know, uh, the, the hardliners will benefit from the lifting of sanctions. And so they're going to want to get back into the JCPOA. Of course, part of the conceit of the Biden administration's approach is that getting back into the JCPOA is meant to be a precursor of what they call a uh, longer, stronger, better agreement that not only lengthens the time periods uh, of restrictions of enrichment on uh, uranium enrichment for Iran under the agreement, but also addresses some of the things left out of the previous agreement, like Iran's behavior in the region and its ballistic missile program, which was left totally uncovered. Uh, and Raisi has basically already said he has absolutely no interest in negotiating anything of the kind on those issues. Uh, so increasingly, I'm afraid it looks like um, getting back to the JCPOA will not be the beginning of something else, will be the end um, of any serious negotiations with Iran. And I think that's why um, you know, you sort of very curt comments by uh, Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor on the Sunday shows about it's now up to the Supreme Leader about whether they get back into the deal and, and whether they're willing to uh, you know, agree to further negotiations. You know, what strikes me listening to you, though, that that we have a long, long, long tradition of getting Iran wrong. Yes. There's something about the, the political, religious culture there that baffles American policymakers. I mean, you think of the number of cosmic blunders we have made, you know, looking for the moderates or thinking that there is an opening or not understanding what it would mean to allow the Shah to come into the United States, et cetera, et cetera. Is there something uniquely opaque about uh, Iran or is there something uniquely, uh, you, know, you know, unique about our relationship with them that makes it difficult, if not impossible, for Americans to get into that mindset? You know, it's very interesting. Um, uh, Ray Takei of the Council on Foreign Relations, who just has published a terrific book uh, um, called The Last Shah about uh, the fall of the Shah. It's a quite revisionist book and in a lot of ways, a terrific book. Uh, he and I wrote uh, a small book for uh, the Hoover Institution a couple of years ago about this. And one of the things we discovered looking back at the relationship is Iran has become, a, since the end of World War II, Iran in, in many different administrations has functioned as the sort of poster child for the administration's uh, strategic approach to the third world. So, uh, for instance, in 1946, uh, we, there was a crisis between the United States and uh, Iran and uh, the Soviet Union over uh, the Soviet Union's uh, delayed withdrawal from Iran, which both uh, Britain and the Soviet Union had occupied, Soviets the North. Britain, the South, during World War II. Um, and this was the beginning of, uh, of uh, President Truman's get tough policy with the Soviets after pretty conciliatory policies by President Roosevelt during the war. Um, in, in the Eisenhower administration, the use of covert action to restore the Shah to the throne after the Mossadegh interlude in 1953 mm -hmm. became the harbinger of the Eisenhower administration's approach uh, to 
the third world, which was to by and large use covert action, uh, which worked in Iran and uh, Guatemala and to some degree in Indonesia, not quite so well in Cuba, which he handed off to John Kennedy uh, with the results we all know. Mm-hmm. Um, with the Kennedy administration and the Johnson administration, it was this huge effort uh, to make modernization the sort of watchword of the U.S. approach in the third world. And the, the Shah's white revolution to some degree became you know, the emblematic uh, case of that. And then the Nixon administration came in with the Nixon doctrine, which was that we were going to deputize sort of regional powers in different parts of the world to bear more of the burden so the United States could retrench after Vietnam. And the poster child, again, was the Shah's Iran. And we engaged in a series of arms sales to help support um, the Shah's regime play that deputy sheriff role in the Persian Gulf, which destabilized the regime and led to the revolution and the overthrow of the Shah. And as you say, we, you know, we've been, um, you know, quite willing to see them as uh, symbolic of an approach we've taken. I mean, since, since the revolution, it's, they've become the symbol, I think, of pariah states and the U.S. approach to nuclear nonproliferation and pariah states. But um, we, we've never really understood what's going on inside Iran, in my view. Okay. So let's let's talk about the the, the summits. We, of course, uh, the president just got back from the G seven, and as well as the Biden Putin summit. You had a piece for us in the Bulwark. How we will know if the Biden Putin summit was a success, and why foreign policy is not just a logical extension of personal relationships. Let's let's start there because you were clearly reacting to a comment that President Biden had made that uh, about personal relationships. You, you you don't buy that. You don't think that foreign policy is just a logical extension of whether these guys get along with each other. Well, first of all, to be fair to President Biden, he's not unique in my experience among presidents in thinking that um, you know his personal relationships are going to somehow transform or change things. This is actually quite a common conceit among presidents, and it's not totally wrong. As I said in the column, um, you know, presentation of self to other another leader at the summit is has been a very important part of of diplomacy since the. Uh, Second World War, certainly since um, the rise of the conference system and uh, with the Congress of, of Vienna, I suppose, in, in, um, in 1815. Um, but it's not the be-all and end-all. I mean, in part because diplomacy uh, is uh, a technique uh, for executing you know, national security policy, which is you know, made on the basis of interests, on geographical position, on economic concerns. There's a whole raft of things, obviously, that go into strategy. Um, And uh, diplomacy is just one aspect of that. And I think uh, Biden's comments suggested a a sort of, you know, conflation. And and I think he conducted himself reasonably well with Putin. Uh, But, you know, the, the, you know, the test of the pudding is going to be in the tasting. And we'll have to see, uh, you know, how, how Putin behaves. And in that regard, both um, you know, both Jake Sullivan over the weekend and the president, um, when he had his little flap with Caitlin Collins, both suggested they have some doubts about uh, how, how much change we're going to see on the part, you know, of Putin's behavior. And, and that goes to the question of whether the timing of this summit made, you know, a lot of sense. I mean, I don't think it, there was any grave damage done to national security by this summit, as opposed to, say, the Helsinki summit with, with Trump. Um, but it, it'll be interesting test. And I suggested this, you know, 
the president tried to put down with President Putin some markers about um, Russian cyber intrusions, whether they're government intrusions from the GRU into USAID or the Solar Winds hack, or whether they're these Russian-based cyber criminals who clearly are operating with the toleration of the Russian state, uh, hacking the colonial pipeline. And there was even a little bit of a veiled menace on the part of Biden, you know, saying nice pipelines you have there, Mr. Putin. It'd be terrible if <laughs> something happened to them, you know, if something happened to ours, you know, I'm a very suspicious, you know, super suspicious person. If something happens to my pipeline, something might happen to yours. Um, but he also gave him a kind of list of 16, as part of this red line exercise, a list of 16 areas of infrastructure that are kind of off limits, as you know, he suggested. So the question is, you know, on the one hand, if Russian attacks fall off, this will be seen, I suppose, as a pretty successful deterrent. But if we start to see Putin nibbling around the edges and saying, well, I can't touch the 16, but that means I got free reign on everything else. Um, that's <laughs> very different. So there was a very interesting moment, and, and you mentioned in your article that this uh, this petulant answer, um, which, for which he apologized later to uh, Caitlin Collins of CNN, you know, she's asking, you know, do you really, you know, trust that uh, Putin's going to change his behavior? And and Biden really pushed back on that, saying that uh, no, he didn't expect it. So give give me your sense of of that because he seemed a little bit defensive, but also wanted to emphasize that he was not being naive about what he had accomplished with Biden at this summit. Yeah. And, uh, you know, to be fair, I mean, I think from his point of view, he was putting down markers and opening up channels of communication, uh, which is not necessarily a, a bad thing. I mean, uh, the bar was so low. I mean, they're, they're sending uh, ambassadors back, you know, from capitals. Of course, this all started uh, when uh, Biden made his comment correctly that uh, Putin is a killer. Um, the Russians withdrew their ambassador, uh, Ambassador Antonov, for consultations as an indication of how uh, poorly they took that remark. Then they did something very unusual, which is they strongly suggested to U.S. Ambassador Sullivan that he should go home for consultations as well. Um, and he initially resisted that for a couple of days and then decided that maybe discretion was a better part of valor and came home. So now the ambassadors will go back. Uh, you know, as Churchill said, jaw, jaw is better than war, war. And so, you know, I think that's, you know, a, a fine outcome, but it's pretty minimal um, in terms of what was agreed. There might be some progress on some of these Americans who've been uh, imprisoned unjustly in, in Russia. Uh, that would be a good thing, of course. Um, but, um, you know, this was a kind of minimal station identification summit where um, Biden was sending the signal, I'm not looking to reset relations uh, as Obama did, but I'm also not going to be, you know, a, um, you know, boot licking ass kisser uh, the way Donald Trump was. Um, and, uh, you know, let's see what we can do from here. So I don't think he has any, you know, great expectations. And I think uh, they are uh, prepared that they may have to put more sanctions on different, you know, uh, bad actors in Russia. Um, but of course, you know, uh, he wanted to portray the summit as a success and, you know, all presidents want their summits to be successful. And certainly from the limited objectives that they set, this one was more successful, I would yeah. say, than the Helsinki summit. 
Well, let's talk about some of the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, some some of the good would be that afterwards, uh, Vladimir Putin seemed to go out of his way to say nice things about uh, about President Biden, including that you know, ch- sort of changing the Russian propaganda line that uh, that Biden was doddering and senile, etc. Saying no, 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 he was he was very sharp and he was very happy. He almost seemed to go out of his way to stress that he thought that 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 Biden was you know compos mentis. What did you make of that? Knowing See, the thing about Putin is nothing's ever straightforward, is it? So it's it's either, hey, he was really impressed, this guy's really bright, but why does Vladimir Putin think it's in his interest to build up Joe Biden's cognitive abilities at this point? I think it was more a question of uh, Putin having an interest in the summit being seen as successful as well. I mean, he had an interest here also, in part because, as I mentioned earlier, you know, the timing of this summit was a little odd, which is that there had been all these things that Putin had done or had been done by Russia in the run up to the summit and the troop buildups on the eastern border of Ukraine, um, the uh, very positive press coverage that Belarusian President Lukashenko got for his active state sponsored air piracy. Uh, and then, uh, you know, Putin welcomed Lukashenko to visit with him in Sochi. And I mean, he doesn't really like Lukashenko very mm-hmm. much, but, but they, he took him out on his boat and was, you know, uh, you know, sort of whining and, and dining him, showing his support uh, for this sort of international outlaw. Um, so the fact that Biden extended the invitation and went through with the um, with the summit, despite all of these other things, the uh, colonial pipeline hack, the yeah, a food hack. Um, it, it basically allowed Putin to do what he wants, which is to be seen as an equal of the United States on the world stage, a respected um, uh, uh, adversary. I mean, uh, you know. So by so by raising Biden's um, profile in that way, he raises his own by exactly. saying this is a worthy adversary. That means that his accomplishment is greater. So I, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, no, I think, so I think that's, uh, you know, part of, I think, frankly, another part of it is we should not forget that Vladimir Putin's, you know, professional training was as a KGB case officer and, and KGB case officers are trained to assess their interlocutors for their strengths and their vulnerabilities in particular that can be turned to advantage. And I think in, in this uh, instance, although Putin and Biden are not strangers. I mean, Putin had, had met Biden before as a senator and then, of course, as vice president. But this is different. You know, when the, you're the president of the United States, that's a different thing. And I'm sure Biden, uh, Putin rather, was looking at Biden to say, you know, take his sense of how much has he changed? Uh, how how uh, strong a personality is he going to be in his own right? And I think he probably was uh, a little bit surprised that Biden was uh, maybe a little bit sharper, a little bit better prepared uh, than maybe had, had um, I think, anticipated. So I think that some of what he said, I think, might have been a genuine a sense that, look, the guy is professional. He came prepared. Uh, he didn't mince any words. The meeting was a lot shorter than people thought. Um, and in that sense, I think it was probably a pretty terse conversation. Uh, but I think, you know, Putin as a professional probably, uh, you know, I think respected that. Um, so I think you're getting some of that uh, as well in those press conference 
comments. I mean, the other thing you got was a long Larry of what aboutism and okay, that's what I was going to get to next, which was the ugly, the the what I mean, the 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 uh, relish with which the Russians and and Putin in particular are playing the what aboutism card and uh, basically spinning some of the disinformation about January six. I mean, this that's kind of an extraordinary moment, isn't it? Watching him feed back some of our own domestic disinformation to us. Yeah, of course. And I mean, I mean, he I'm sure he and his colleagues couldn't be happier that, you know, all of this stuff is getting so much traction. I mean, he loves to be able to say, oh, your elections are as crooked as ours. Look at what that Arizona, you know, audit is turning up and look at all these other things. And and uh, those poor, you know, peaceful protesters strolling through uh, the Capitol looking for a stray, you know, glimpse of. Mike Pence doing his constitutional duty, and now they're having a book thrown at him. Uh, and I know that because even Ted Cruz and others have been saying, what about you know the disproportion between the January 6th people and the ones arrested for Black Lives Matter protests, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, you know, it's just um, he's got a lot to work with, unfortunately. Um, and uh, it was and and came prepared to do that. I mean, you could tell that was something that he was locked and loaded to do when he got some pretty tough questions from American reporters about his record. Uh, so now he, he comes armed. He wasn't being defensive about it. He was just saying, well, you know, again, look at these things that you are doing, which weirdly enough uh, echoed the former guy's uh, comments to Bill O'Reilly, that, that famous answer when Bill O'Reilly asked about uh, Putin being a killer and Remember when uh, Donald Trump said, "Well, we kill lots of people too," because I, I yeah, certainly you think remember a time. And, yeah, that's right. We're we're so great. Um, I, I certainly remember a time when Republicans and conservatives hated that kind of moral equivalency. I mean, that used to be at the center yeah. of the conservative critique of the left on foreign policy. Uh, I am old enough to remember that, Charlie. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of us are. I mean, that was that was something that uh, th that I remember reading Bill Buckley talking about that uh, so many so many years ago. So, what other things should we be watching right now in terms of the rest of the world? Um, how is? I mean, I know you've talked about this before, but the uh, vaccine diplomacy, um, major initiative by the Biden administration. How is it playing? What should we be looking to have happen next? Well, I think, uh, you know, the more vaccine diplomacy we can do, the better. I mean, the, I think the Russians and the Chinese got out a, a little bit, of, uh, you know, ahead of us, but their vaccines are not as good. A, a lot of it comes with strings attached. Um, again, uh, President Biden's national security advisor in backgrounding before the president's trip talked about uh, the um, steps that were taken um, at the uh, G7 summit and at the US EU summit um, are just the first steps. There's going to be more. And I think the more of it we can do, the, the better for the world, the better for us um, in terms of our own situation, you know, with COVID. I mean, this Delta variant that's spreading is, you know, worrisome. And uh, until everybody in the world is vaccinated, you're going to have, you know, that problem still out there. So it's, uh, it's, very much in our enlightened self-interest to do this. Very much, yeah. And, it's and almost a perfect example of enlightened self-interest, isn't it? Yeah. You know, particularly so. that that very much in our, because despite all the railing of the last four years against globalism, the reality is, is that pandemics tend to be global. They, there's no wall that protects us from them. We live in an interconnected world and we can't pretend otherwise. And so 
I, I look, I give the administration a relatively high marks. They've been a little slower getting off the out of the blocks on this than I would have liked, but I think they've been doing the right things. I think more is coming. Uh, and that's, I think, all to the good. And in general, I think it uh, says that I do think one of the things President Biden did well uh, in his trip last week was he lined up, um, you know, the um, U.S. Uh, allies and the democracies before he went to talk to Putin. Um, and he had a you know successful NATO summit. They're all successful almost, you know, by design. Um, he had a, a good G7 summit, a good USEU summit. He managed to sort of rally people about as much as he could, I think, to take China seriously as a threat. And he had a united front going in uh, to see uh, Putin again. Not It's not a perfect united front because of um, some of the um, uh, allies being more willing to you know, do things like uh, have the Nord Stream pipeline and that kind of thing. But uh, he did reasonably well in the alliance management piece of summitry, and I give him and his team credit for that. Eric Edelman, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. Uh, Eric is a, is currently a counselor at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments and uh, served as Under Secretary of Defense for Policy from 2005 to 2009. We always appreciate it when you join us on the podcast, Ambassador. It's always great to be with you, Charlie. If you invite me back, I'll come back. We will definitely do that. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow and we'll do this all over again. <laughs>